Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm Ellen Broughton. And I'd like to introduce um, Dr. Tim Willens, who is um, a dear old friend. <laughs> he's Chief of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Mass General Hospital, and he's also a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And he's an expert in a topic we're going to talk about today, substances, for better or worse, the medications we give for uh, bona fide psychiatric disorders, uh, the medications that we use recreationally, like a little bit of alcohol maybe, and some substances that are misused. Um, but before we start on that important topic, um, let's just check in. So how's the last week been, everybody? Well, this is really the question of the of the century because it's been a really busy and um, stressful week for most of our listeners and perhaps even most of the people uh, everywhere. There's been a lot going on in the news. There's been a lot of sadness, a lot of grief, and it's been a tough week for a lot of people. And how about you, Tim? So, so you know, I find it at uh, exactly a week of reflection. I mean, it's really been, there have been more discussions in my family about some of the unfolding events around George Floyd and many of the uh, areas that sort of resonate and harmonize with where my kids are at, where we're at as a family. And it's, it's really been both sad in terms of really digging in and realizing that. And then it's been sort of an epiphany in terms of things that we haven't been able to talk about that we're talking about in a much more open way. And, and I think that it's, uh, I think it's a, a very good conversation in the end. Tim, remind us, how old are your kids? They're in college, okay. which was great, except that they're sitting at home right now because of COVID. I hear this a lot from parents of college students, that they unexpectedly have more people living in the house than they thought they would at this time. And it comes with its pluses and minuses. But I think you're right, what you said. I, I hear this a lot, and maybe it's just the hopeful and resilient nature in us that I kind of wonder if maybe this difficult time is really a time of sort of rethinking everything and breaking it down. I, I saw a phrase somebody said, you know, people have been saying 2020 is, is the worst year, but maybe it's really going to be looked at as one of the best years because of what will come out of a lot of, a lot of really tough, tough experiences. So I, I can resonate with all that. And, and it's, it's been uh, hard for me to stay focused. Um, I, I was born in 1950 and, um, I was, um, I was actually suspended from school in ninth grade because I was selling student nonviolent coordinating committee peace buttons for a dollar a piece, uh, uh, because the civil rights movement was high on, high on my list. And, and I, and I still remember the, the assassination of, of Dr. King, but these demonstrations are decidedly different. I think than the ones that I participated in. And in, in some ways, um, it, it, it's, it's both sad that we're seeing this again, like 40, 50 years, 400 years too late, uh, but um, it does feel different. On, on the brighter side, my biggest distraction is that I have a new granddaughter and she spent two weeks in the NICU, that's the newborn intensive care unit, because she, uh, uh, they call it aspirated meconium. She had some uh, pulmonary problems um, 
and it was tough. That was stressful too, because having a baby in the hospital during COVID is, is when one, only one parent can visit at a time made me realize kind of the multitude of ways stress comes at all of us. But fortunately, Casey is at home now with mom and dad and her sister. And I, I can actually, you know, FaceTime with the family again. So Tim, as clinicians, Ellen and I get asked a lot Let's just start with the basics. I mean, um, is, there, is there a role, I'm going to make it very general, is there a role for medications for children and adolescents in, 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 uh, in taking care of mental, mental illness? Well, I'll, I'll answer it simply. And if I said no, then that would truncate my time on your blog. So <laughs> for no other but in, in, you know, in, in truth, I think we all realize, yeah, there's a, there's a major role for medications. You know, I, I would say that I, and I really feel this is important and we have, you know, with Ellen, an expert in this, that it really, when we think about using medicines in kids with a host of different psychiatric disorders, we really need to think what's wrong first. So, you know, uh, a big job of, they call us psychopharmacologists, people who specialize in psychiatric medications for kids, but it, it all starts with a good evaluation. And once you've figured out what's wrong, what's going on with the child, you know, if this is a parent-child interaction issue, it's probably not good for medication solely. If this is a, if this is a psychiatric disorder, such as attention deficit disorder, or if it's a mood disorder, or if it's one of the big family of anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive, um, those are types of disorders that in fact, medicines may be appropriate, but first you have to know what's wrong. And then once you know what's wrong, you have to take a look and say, okay, what are the most effective treatments for that? If it turns out that certain types of psychotherapies may be more effective than medicines, then that's what you start with. And you try that first, and if that works, great. If it doesn't, then you think about meds. In other situations, you may start with meds first. And then in a large group of kids, we use both. We really want, we really want to move the dial. We want kids to be well. We don't want them just to have fewer problems or symptoms, they call them. But we want them to really be well. So it's a complex answer to a simple question, um, which I think you expected. But I, I'd also think that nuanced answer is the difference between sort of getting care and getting good care. I think that a lot of parents have a fear of medication and for good reason. I mean, it's, it's a big step for parents to take. And um, what do you find that parents are most fearful of when they come to you asking what are the side effects or should I do this or not? What, what are their fears often about? You know, that's a great point. And I think there's two levels of fears. One is it is a realization. It, when you're using therapy for anxiety, I'm going to make it simpler. If you're using therapy for anxiety, the kid has some anxiety symptoms and they're being treated with a usually a cognitive behavioral type of therapy, whatever the therapy is. And it doesn't really, the parents don't feel the kid is labeled. When you're sitting across from somebody and they write a prescription or we don't write prescriptions anymore. We type them into a computer. But <laughs> if you use your computer to generate a, a prescription, um, that there's something real about that. Now, this is a real disorder that's so significant that you need medications for it. So that's one thing that parents fear about medicines, and I've learned. The second part is the medicine itself. You know, is this medicine going to cause harm? Is this medicine going to make things worse? 
is this medication potentially addictive? Um, is my kid going to have to be on this medicine for the rest of their life? Did I basically just introduce something by trying to be a good parent that's actually going to result in uh, uh, this kid being on that medicine forever? And finally, is this just a Band-Aid? Am I just covering the real underlying cause or root cause of whatever is bothering my kid if they're anxious, if they have, they're depressed or something like that? So I think it's multifold, you know, in terms of their concerns. When you start medicines, I think it becomes more about the side effects. Ellen? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so, I mean, Tim is, is one of the world's renowned experts on medications in general, but particularly medications in ADHD. And I know that's probably the, the diagnosis that parents are most curious about, because a lot of times when, when a child is depressed or anxious, parents really know that I, I've got to do, if you're at the point of medication, usually parents are thinking, I've got to do anything I can to make my child feel better. But ADHD is a little bit tougher, and it's also more common as well. So what, tell, tell us a little bit about just ADHD medications in general and what parents can expect when they put their kids on medication for inattention or hyperactivity or impulsivity. Well, you know, it, it, and it is a spectrum disorder, exactly what Ellen is saying. It's There are some people who have ADHD that's mild, that they have some inattention and problems with distractibility, and they may be a little impulsive, but they actually function reasonably well. They're bumping the walls. They're kind of, you know, they may not be the most efficient. And, but those are people that typically aren't going to require medication. In fact, we usually don't like thinking about using medicines for more mild cases. But there seems to be an agreed upon threshold when there's, you know, a lot of people ask me what thresholds in general do I use? When a kid is really impaired functionally, when a kid is really struggling, or when a kid is really suffering, so struggling, suffering, impaired, I really think you need to think about medications. It's sort of a bar that we use. And it's, it's a bar that's pretty straightforward. And I, I have to say, parents know that bar. They know where that is when they see that. It's usually a bar where the, the parents actually can feel their heart breaking. They, they, they can feel very sad about it. They watch feeling pretty helpless and hopeless at times, being with their kid and noticing that. That's where I would say we're at. And when with ADHD, it's when kids who have the potential to get A's and B's are getting D's. Kids are giving up because of that. Kids sit down to do homework. That should take 15, 20, 30 minutes, and it's taking them an hour, an hour and a half. Um, they're not being able to get things done. When kids work very hard to get things done, often with parents helping them, and they forget to turn in their homework, or they go to school, they go into the wrong class or they don't get the class on time, even though they got to school on time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just sort of the beginning of that. And it seems to impact everything. And then they don't have friends like they used to have and they aren't getting along and they're feeling sad because they don't have friends. They're feeling sad because they're getting a lot of negative comments from everybody. You know, these are the kids that I say, look, you've tried, the kid has tried, they're failing in a number of different or struggling in a lot of different ways. And those are the ones that often medicines can make a robust difference. In fact, the, the most effective medicines we have in child and adult psychiatry are medicines that we use to treat ADHD. Those are the ones that work the best. Uh, and in, within, I, people say days, but I would say within a few weeks, 
you often can come up with a treatment that's working very well and can be sustained for many, many months or if necessary, many years. So, so let me go back to a couple of the things you said before, uh, the fears that parents have. One, and one is, um, if a medication is warranted for ADHD or anxiety or depression, um, does it shorten the life of uh, the, uh, the disorder? In other words, does it, is it a lifelong condemnation or you know, uh, a sentence, as it were, that a parent is afraid of, or is, is appropriate judicious intervention with medications helpful in um, not making something a lifelong disorder? Yeah, so it's, you know, that's a, there's a lot of interest in exactly that question. Do you change the trajectory or course of disorders by treating them earlier and more aggressively? And, you know, from a neurobiological standpoint, it's hard to make the argument that leaving disorders untreated is in your best interest. It's really not just a neurobiological argument. That is, let's take something that nobody debates, and that is seizure disorders. One thing we know about seizure disorders is you can start with just small localized seizures that maybe affect an arm, et cetera. And if you do nothing, they go to the other side of the brain in that exact location, and they'll, they'll now affect the other hand. And if you continue to neglect those seizures, they will then generalize to the general brain, and you will now have fulminant clonic-tonic seizures where you may have just had a focal seizure previously. And more and more, we think that way about psychiatric disorders, that if you jump on them more aggressively, and I'm not saying with just meds, but medicine is part of that one, um, you may change the course. The one thing we do know from a number of studies, and we're actually doing a big government study as we speak, we're just starting it, and that is that if you can treat psychiatric disorders early and and really knock them down by using the proper combination treatments, um, there is evidence that that will certainly reduce the sequelae of that. So let's say you look at hopelessness with ADHD or depression secondary to ADHD, or substance use secondary to mood disorders, things like that. If you treat those disorders up front, you don't have the sequelae. And I don't think that's surprising to anybody because people when you are depressed, you get hopeless, and then there's more rates of suicide. If you don't treat ADHD, they become depressed. And certainly substances, you hear it over and over about, I started using because I was anxious, because I didn't feel good, because I couldn't attend. And if you let kids be to their own, you know, they'll go out and use substances that are quite easy for them to get their hands on. You bring up a very good point because one of the things that parents often are afraid of is that taking medication, particularly back to ADHD, is going to make their <laughs> child become more likely addicted to something else in the future. And what does the research show on that? So that is one of the areas that we've researched for years and we can show unequivocally as has been replicated internationally in now millions of patient years of experience that treatment of disorders such as ADHD with medicines that are controlled substances like the stimulants reduces the risk for the development of substance use disorders. It doesn't immunize you because you're still at risk by being a kid, but it brings it back to population risk. Whereas ADHD doubles at risk, it brings you back to population risk if you're treated for your ADHD. 
and they, and we were very fortunate to have one of these big heel grants to study what is the effect over the long haul of 16 to 30 year olds if you treat their psychiatric disorders do you reduce the likelihood that they're going to v- develop nicotine use substance use opioid use disorders etc uh, and if you look at the literature, at least for ADHD, we're, we're optimistic that we're going to be that uh, that we'll be able to to show what has been shown for other disorders that probably mitigating the the uh, the risk of developing these disorders, and that's a good outcome. You know, our um, I, again, we don't think that medicines are going to immunize kids from being at risk because everybody's at risk for substance use disorders, particularly during your adolescent and early adult years, but treating really seems to reduce that. Even with medicines like amphetamines, that can be misused. Um, not when used appropriately. Don't seem to see, we don't see that. So, so let, me, let me make a segue here into this period we're in right now where everybody's hanging out at home. Their kids are, where many of them, lonely, bored, isolated. Parents are stressed. They're working remotely. They're not socializing. They're not seeing their, uh, their rest of their families. Um, it's a stressful time for everybody. So I'd like you to comment on a couple things here, Tim. One is, is that you did an amazing study, I think, that showed that parental substance, the control of parental use of substances was effective for their children. Uh, I think it was in regard to ADHD and, and alcohol use. Um, so could you comment on, on that, on what the parental influence of use of substances is, especially in these tough times? Uh, and in terms of helping to prevent psychiatric disorders in kids. Yeah, so it's a, you know, um, substance use, we know it's, it's an interesting study, a, a disorder to look at when you look at substance use disorders, but 50% of use disorders actually is probably genetic. So it's running in the genes. And then about 50% is environmental. And if you look at the environmental, it is what's going on in the community and what's going on in the family. Um, and so people, families that have a style that they use, they drink too much, they smoke too much marijuana, they use harder drugs or they tolerate harder drugs, you're going to see higher rates in those kids. Studies have demonstrated that before. The other thing that, that a lot of people who have histories themselves say, look, I've been in remission for a number of years and I'm really worried that because I used alcohol or I had a drug use disorder, that's going to put my kid at risk. What's the best thing I can do? Well, we had data that shows not using it. It's kind of an obvious answer, but it actually is really important. You actually can do a lot by not using, particularly around your kids and their preteens. That is the best thing you can do because exposure to preteens when using vastly increases their likelihood to use. Not so much when they're younger. And once they're you know, 18, 16, 17, 18, I would argue it's a little bit too late. They've already seen it, but it's really in that, 12, 13, 14-year-old age range, which is, by the way, when substance use is starting in kids, that if a parent is using heavily in front of them, then you're going to see a much higher likelihood that that kid uses. So it's a, it's a good lesson that way. But also wellness in the family, discussion around alcohol and marijuana is really important. Some people say you can't drink anything in front of your kids. No, there's no evidence that that has a huge impact. Uh, responsible use of alcohol. And I would say responsible use of marijuana now. Marijuana is legal in the Commonwealth and it's virtually legal in most all states now in either a medical or recreational mode. 
So, you know, talking about marijuana, if you're smoking, I think responsibly smoking. And by the way, watch where your marijuana supply is the same way. Watch your alcohol supply. Parents are good about watching their alcohol supply, noticing when there's missing alcohol, when you have teens around. Same with marijuana. Keep a close eye on your, your stash, as they say. So are you seeing um, any differences in kids or families right now in terms of their alcohol and drug use or misuse? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. It's a good news, bad news story. So the bad news, and I know many of your listeners are going to shed tears with this when I say this, is that for some of the harder drugs like methamphetamine and and some of the uh, fentanyl derivatives, there's actually shortages out there. And it's because of the same shortages you're running into when you go to, to buy certain products. The reagents, largely from China, are not as available. And because of that, these big drug cartel operations and Mexico and others, which rely on these reagents, uh, can't make, can't process their drugs. So I know many of you are very, very sad to hear that. Um, we know that that availability begets use. So that the use is cut back in some of those hard drugs. Um, the the bad news, good news flip on that is there is increases in in alcohol sales, for example. So alcohol consumption is up. Uh, alcohol sales are up, uh, and we're, we haven't really seen the fallout from that from a, a motor vehicle perspective because people aren't driving so much, and we haven't seen it medically yet. And as you probably know, it takes a while to see the medical complications of things such as alcohol out there. Uh, marijuana has been uh, appears to be stable to reduce because, again, many of the dispensaries uh, had, were shut down temporarily. Some of them are reopening. Uh, people uh, have not been able to resupply. And again, what's available tends to get you, uh, drives use. That's one thing that we've known about half of the healthcare dollar or half of drug dollars, I, I should say, go to healthcare and the other half go to interdiction, trying to keep drugs out of the country. And the reason they do that is because if it's around, it gets used. Uh, so we're, we're seeing it. And, you know, a lot of times what I tell people is to monitor, you know, for the parents who are t- taking care of kids and it can be stressful taking care of kids right now, really easy to drink or smoke too much, you know, uh, you really should have a governor on yourself. You should monitor your own drinking. Just remind people if uh, you're a male and you're uh, be- under 60 years of age, over 21 and up to six, up to 60, you sh- shouldn't be drinking more than two drinks a day or a maximum of 14 at a, at, in a week, not all at the same time, of course. And if you're uh, a woman, it should be about seven drinks a week. Uh, again, not all at the same time. Um, marijuana is not so clear yet. You know, we're, uh, you know, people talk about different uh, amounts. I would just remind people that medical marijuana is one to two puffs once or twice a day. Um, and that seems to be a very good guide, you know, in terms of safety. There doesn't appear to get people into harm, especially older, you know, people who are not kids over the age of 25. Um, probably not a lot of harm at that, at that rate if you're not driving a motor vehicle. So, so, Tim, let me ask you a, a question about conversations, because many parents want to know, I mean, the kids are watching, but you, you said talk to the kids. So um, let's say you have addiction in your family. Let's say you have self-medication for mood disorders in your family. Uh, and, and the kids know who's the heavy drinker and who's the smoker and who's the, they know that. So how young do you start conversations with your kids? And what do you tell them as they're seeing you take a drink or a beer here, there, or what, you know, what, what, 
what do you recommend? Because parents always want to know, when do I talk, start talking to kids? How, what words do I use? How do I, how do I adjust this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, I'm, and I would open that back up to both of you who have those conversations with parents also. <laughs> the, data would, the data, so if we're going to use data to help drive a little of that conversation, what I think is helpful is when you look at the curves, when do, pe- when do kids actually start getting into substance use, substance use disorders, and things like that? It's around age 12-ish. And most prevention really should start a year plus before that. And yet you're matching that with the cognitive capacity of the kids to really understand these types of things. In general, I think fifth grade is a good, a good time to be opening these discussions with kids. Um, and I think you don't have to have long, long-winded, you know, prophetic conversations with the kids, but to have some conversations. And sometimes it's hard to ask kids directly. For example, when I'm sitting across from kids, I start these conversations at, again when they're 10 years old or so in fifth grade. And I don't necessarily say, are you smoking cigarettes? Are you smoking marijuana? You know, that's a thing. And I usually will say, do you have any friends who are smoking cigarettes? Anybody you know who's drinking or using marijuana or any other kind of drug? And just open that conversation. So I think that's a good time for parents to start that conversation. And I, I absolutely think that if you have a family history of substance use disorders, it's absolutely not anything to be ashamed of talking to your kid because you can give them valuable information to help them in terms of appreciating a bit more about the risk that they may have if they start using substances. And sort of a side note to that, it's a little bit scary to know that there have been studies that looked at kids who are born to parents who have alcohol use disorders, for example, And what they found in these kids is their response to any kind of alcohol or like drug, a benzodiazepine, which is what we prescribe, but it's kind of similar to alcohol in many ways. Um, You get a different response in those kids who are born to parents who have an alcohol use history versus those who don't. So why am I giving this example? It's because these kids may really be at different risk for that first or second or third drink. And they need to know what the family history is and reiterate to these kids that there's very few disorders in life that we deal with that you'll never have if you don't use, you know, you can have a severe course of a substance use like alcohol, but if you never drink, you'll never have alcohol use disorders. You'll never have cirrhosis. You'll never have all of the horrific side of, you know, long-term consequences of alcohol. So talking about it, family history, I found you know, in my patients, really helpful. And then if kids start to drink and they get into trouble, they know that this is a flag because they've been taught, taught by their parents about their family history. So, so, you know, it reminds me of one anecdote. There's a guy named John Renner who used to be a supervisor of mine, training director at uh, BU. Uh, and, and he said this, like, I think it was 40 years ago, not knowing the neurobiology. He said, there's something that happens when, uh, when someone who is likely to become alcoholic takes that first drink. There's something about the, the euphoria, the impact, the power of that that is unbelievable. And asking about what it was like to take your first drink can be a tip-off. So that plays into exactly what you're saying the data shows, right, Tim? Well, it does. First of all, a shout-out to John, who was also... <laughs> My, 
my first mentor in substance use, and, and John was is still a huge advocate that these things start very early. Fifty percent of substance issues start in during childhood, before the age of eighteen, and almost all of them are linked to some type of a psychiatric problem. So it's actually really important. And I think the reason he and I have been so influenced is because one of his co-workers, Dom Srulo, was the one who did some of the first studies like that, showing that the first exposure to alcohol is different. And when you talk to people who I've treated in detoxes who've lived their whole life with substance use, the two things they tell you about is, number one, that that first drink or the first Coke or whatever I used was really different. I just never experienced any. And number two, almost all of them have something else wrong. I've been depressed my whole life. I've had ADHD. I've had anxiety or I've had all three. Or I've also been dyslexic and nobody ever picked up on it. And between the combination of these things, I never had a chance. That's really interesting. Um, Tim, there's one other thing that I get asked, and it's sort of in the realm of what we're talking about right now, and that is self-medication. When kids, uh, you know, we hear a lot about that. Do people use or do kids at risk for ADHD or other, or even just kids, like you mentioned, a child might feel really bad about himself or herself because of, um, because they, you know, have a learning disability. What about self-medicating? Is that really a thing? You know, that's a great question. And, and that is something that is still being debated in the addiction circles. Um, Ed Kantian is a uh, professor and is in, with the Cambridge Health Alliance. And he is the one who's really written the most on this area. And my experience in the research we've done has all pointed that there is self-medication. I'm very agnostic to that viewpoint. But everything we, every one of our studies seems to show, if you look at does, let's say, bipolar, do bipolar kids, uh, does that lead to substance use? What the answer is, is that it seems to, that is what they're reporting. But then when we look at what's really linked to substance use, it's the amount of mood dysregulation and that pe people want to dampen the mood dysregulation. So there appears to be a very, you know, I think potent effect of self-medication on driving some of the um, substance use. Now, having said that, many people in the field feel like people use it as an excuse. They'll say, well, I'm, this is the only thing that helps my anxiety. This is the only thing that helps my mood. And whereas I think it may be sort of, you know, ideological or causing some of the substance use, I think it's also important to realize that it shouldn't be used as, as an excuse for substance use, that we have very effective therapies, that we have very effective wellness programs in combination with medications that can truly eradicate many of the symptoms that you're using. So people in the addiction field feel like a lot of people use it as a crutch saying, well, I can't give up my marijuana because nothing helps my sleep. Well, in fact, we have lots of good, you know, uh, multimodal treatments for sleep and you really don't need to be smoking a joint or two joints a day to sleep properly. Um, there's other things we can do for you. Well, this has been terrific. Um, uh, uh, I, 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 there's a lot more questions. We have to watch the clock. Ellen, this is your last podcast as co-host. It is. I <laughs> miss you. I know. I, 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 this is a really tough one. It ends on a very good and informative topic. But um, I'm, I really will be missing my time here. 
Well, you're you're going to be doing some Facebook lives, right? You yes, have a couple I am. more Ask Ellen's, and you'll come back. You're not leaving Mass General. No, not at all. Not <laughs> so, at all. But it's been amazing. Um, I, I'm I'm going to be very lonely. <laughs> so, um, uh, but I, I want to thank everybody for being here and um, to the audience. Uh, this this is such a huge area. The whole question of medications and stigma and combined treatments and self-medicating and substance use, we could go on. And Tim, I hope you'll come back. You absolutely, have to, absolutely. I'd love to come back. Well, yeah, the thing, I, the thing I, I, I value most, not, not most, but maybe most, is that you're data-driven, you're evidence-driven, but you can talk common sense and you can make complicated, very, very complicated neurobiological studies you know, really accessible for parents and caregivers uh, and for kids themselves. And I, I think that's kind of a gift. So thank uh, you. I appreciate it. I wish I heard that I had common sense when I'm at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll no, talk one, with... no parent has common sense at home. That's just part of being a parent. Yeah, send your kids to me. I'll, I'll talk with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, and thanks, Tim. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Gene Bereson. I'm Ellen Broughton. 